1: Welcome to Go Green
0: Radio. I'm glad that you could join us today. You know, a lot of people ask me the same question over and over and over again as I go around the country and actually go around the world and speak about uh, the nonprofit organization that I started back in 2002 called the Go Green Initiative. You can check it out online at gogreeninitiative.org. But a lot of folks see elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, going green, doing all these things to involve students. And then they get to the college level, and some folks are concerned that because, you know, college is just a different animal, there's uh, different things that the students are involved in, it's a little bit difficult to get all of the students sometimes uh, to coalesce around the same activities the same way you can at the lower grades. And they ask me, how do you... Go Green on a university campus, particularly a very large university campus. It seems like a very daunting task. So today's episode of Go Green Radio will answer that question for you definitively. We have a guest who is making that happen at the University of California, San Diego. John Dilliott is their manager of energy and utilities, and he's going to be sharing with us some of the incredible work that he and the staff and students have done at UC San Diego to create a truly green campus, particularly around one of the most difficult issues to embrace, and that is energy management, and he's done some really exciting projects. Welcome to Go Green Radio, John.
2: Well, thanks very much, Jill. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show.
0: Well, I'm honored to have you on. I know that you're a busy man, and uh, I know that the campus is, is alive and vibrant, and just the fact that you made time to be with us is a great honor from our perspective. Let's start by having you explain your role and responsibilities at the University of California, San Diego. What exactly does the manager of energy and utilities
2: do for the campus? Well, you know, first and foremost, um, it's to provide a safe and reliable Energy to the buildings. We are, you know, we are a community of you know forty-five to fifty thousand people on a twelve-hundred-acre campus where we own and operate our electrical system, which is a high-voltage set of wires and transformers, and a central plant that produces high-pressure steam and high-temperature water. And those are inherently dangerous um, forms of energy, and when they are released, um, you know, they could uh, harm uh lots of things especially people so we want to make sure that the dedicated staff that that come here and maintain those systems you know go home to their families every night so that's really that's number 1 priority is to make sure we deliver safe and reliable energy and then uh in that sense we want to make sure we do it efficiently uh both to to save energy and to save uh money for the campus uh so we we trend that and we look at that very carefully so big part of my job is energy efficiency where we look at those uh, numbers and, and who's using energy and, and can we save uh, and where can we save at. And then also a big role is the purchase utility side. So um, we do use a lot of energy and we're, we, we pay a lot for energy, so we need to really manage those uh, commodities, uh, natural gas or electricity and water. So really those, those three things is to keep a reliable, safe, efficient, and cost-effective utility system uh, and deliver that energy uh, to, the, to the campus needs.
0: Well, that's no small task. I mean, when you talk about a community of 45 to 50,000, I mean, that's the size of a lot of cities. It's larger than the size of a lot of towns around the U.S. Surely what you're doing is uh, on par with what a lot of of cities and municipalities are dealing with in terms of energy. I'm curious to know, how much uh, are the students involved in the work you do? I mean, are there opportunities for students to get some hands-on work experience in the energy field by working with you?
2: Yeah, I think that um, it really is one of the uh leading efforts that that sort of I've seen sort of change in the last you know five or ten years is the the students' involvement. Um, now this is you know a, a research campus and it is uh, high on the academics. I think if you look at at their rankings, so the pressure on the students to perform academically is is huge. Um, so for them to now, I see this this shift where you know they are demanding. Uh, that the campus be green as well, and their involvement has really ratcheted up so um, so one is it, is that that they know that that energy and energy use is the you know number one contributor to greenhouse gases and mm-hmm. and global potential global warming, and uh, they want to be involved and they want to get the uh, they want to be involved to to lower those numbers for you know the campus operations so a lot of students are choosing u c San Diego because they read about the the programs we have and and that we are going green. So in that sense, there are over about 80 student groups that are identified on campus that do some sort of energy or environmental awareness. And um, of that, there is a particular group that that I work with. It's called the Green Campus Students, and it's actually funded through uh, a grant from the utilities um, through the – Sort of energy conservation pool of funds mm-hmm. where they actually go out and do energy, um energy work on campus for us, uh, where they'll do audits and recommendations and actually change out lights and, and, uh, and do analysis to find out ways that we can lower our energy. But, but we cover all areas and are sort of open, uh, to, to that because we understand that, that, that the, when a student goes out and, and raises awareness about, um, especially waste or, or inefficient processes on campus, it, it does get a higher level of, of action and um, response from the community. Sure.
0: You know, I'm curious to know, of the kids that are in the Green Campus program, do they tend to be all the same major, I mean, in terms of their choice of studies, or do they kind of come from many different um, studies or, or different majors?
2: Well a, a lot do come from there there is a great program uh, it's an environmental systems major uh, on uh-huh. campus and so it th- th- does seem a, a predominant amount come from there but th- there's a great amount of diversity in in interest um, as well as from the engineering side as uh, as well um, We do work as an example um, uh, we do uh, I speak, or, or someone in my group speaks, to the thermodynamics students uh, mm-hmm. every quarter, and so that that generates interest. Uh, we cool. have this communication and and um, partnering with uh, with faculty that that are doing energy efficiency work, and so they're always bringing their interns around to do uh, specialized studies, and um, and so Very we encourage cool. that, and, and it's always it's always the best part of of, of working on a campus is is to is to work with the students because that's why we're here.
0: Right. You're creating a learning laboratory as you go about doing your job. That's fantastic. Now, I know that UCSD generates a, probably the, the vast majority, if not the overwhelming majority, of its own energy. How is that accomplished, John?
2: Yeah, well, the the concept is, is what they call cogeneration. And that is where you take one form of energy, in our case of fuel like natural gas, and then you um, sort of convert it into two uh, useful forms of energy. So you take a fuel in, and then you have two useful energies out. That's the co. So we take natural gas in in gas turbines and create electricity with that, and then the waste heat from the gas turbines is hot enough to make steam, and then we take that steam and make both chilled water and high-temperature water out of that to heat and cool the campus. So um, in that sense, the the thermal part, the steam part, sort of is, is our limiting factor on, on how we size that plant. So we have such a uh, big uh, heating and cooling load on campus because most of our space on campus is heavy research and, and we also have hospital on campus and clinical space as well as, as all other kind of, um, I think it's the beauty of working here is that we cover all areas of energy, whether it's a dorm or a classroom or uh, heavy chemical fume hood laboratory to operating rooms um, so our, our base load is pretty high and that sort of led us to to invest in this cogeneration so the co the cogeneration takes care of our base load and throughout the year that ends up being about 80 85% of of, the, of our total energy is supported by that by that cogeneration plant and um, so that that's how we do it uh, That's that pretty process, amazing. It, now, yeah, and,
0: where does the natural gas that fuels your cogen plant? Where does it come from? And do you have any concerns about supply lines of that fuel over the next few years?
2: Um, yeah, well, the that, well, I'm going to one quick point on that last question because the the process of cogeneration is um inherently more efficient than burning natural gas for your steam and importing all the electricity uh, from the grid. So that cogeneration process has a net efficiency of about 66% as compared to the other side uh, of doing the other business as usual where that overall efficiency is about 35%. But the, oh, wow. the natural gas that we use, it, it comes from, the, you know, which is called the continental United States or the continental North America supply chain. So the pipes run all the way up into, um, Colorado, all the way over into the Permian Basin in, um, in Texas, but the system, uh, and also from uh, what they call liquefied natural gas imports from, um, from anywhere in the world that can come down into facilities there in the United States. But the, the, the network of natural gas piping in, in Northern, uh, North America is all connected. So where the actual molecule comes from, um, you know, can't really say, but we're connected to that system. Okay. You know, I I
0: can't help but wonder how you insulate the campus against, you know, I mean, this week we saw natural gas prices rise. Do you have, uh, you know, contracts or a way of insulating the campus from that kind of fluctuation in pricing? Or um, are you all subject to the same fluctuations in natural gas pricing that typical consumers would be?
2: Well, yes. um, Yes and no to that. Uh, We we are... We do procure commodity natural gas uh separately from the utility. So, you know, at your house, you are, um, you know, at the behest of the local utility and their purchasing strategies, which normally have to be approved through Public Utilities Commission, and they always have a way to pass through all their costs on the commodity fuel side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, without a doubt this con- this concern about natural gas pricing is the otherwise than the safety of this of our system is you know the one issue that can really keep you up at night um, mm-hmm. because it can swing so so wildly, and each increment of cost has has a big effect on on the campus because we generate eighty five percent of our energy through natural gas uh, the The metric is something like every twenty five cent movement in, in natural gas prices is is over a million dollar impact uh, annually to us. Wow! So and the price can change by a dollar in fifteen minutes. So if, if you sit there and, and look at the natural gas, which is called the, which is on the New York Mercantile Exchange or the NYMEX, I mean you can kind of go crazy looking at that. So we have developed a whole bunch of strategies that kind of really came out from the the energy crisis in two thousand two thousand and one, and and really more so from uh, the hurricane activities um, of the uh, Rita and Katrina, and what and what that did to the natural gas market. So we have a whole strategy of of uh, securing uh, gas in the future, and you know combination of spot market purchases and long term purchases to because we really um, value. Uh, the the steadiness and and the surety Mm -hmm. of it, and we want to take the volatility out out of it. So we will potentially pay uh, maybe a premium to to have that to insulate us from the volatility.
0: Sure. Well, that sounds smart. You know, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we're going to be back with much more about how John and the UCSD campus has done some amazing amazing projects to go green and to save energy and save money as well. So don't go away folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you're all with us because we are in a great conversation here with John Diliot, who's the Manager of Energy and Utilities for the University of California, San Diego. And some of the projects, we were just talking about their cogeneration power plant. Um, last segment, we're going to talk about some of their other great technologies and great programs that they have instituted. But he has really taken this campus in, in a very modern, very 21st century direction um, in terms of their energy use and conservation. Uh, I'm really proud of what you guys have done, John, and I'm looking forward to hearing the answer to this next question because for a lot of college campuses, this is the central question. Talk to us about the money side. I know that it probably took some investments in order to get the technologies going that you're using uh, to generate your energy. But what about cost savings? Give us some idea of how much the campus is saving by generating 85% of its energy through this cogin plant and significantly how these savings parlay into things that the campus is able to do as a result of saving that amount on utilities in their budget. Talk to us about the money side.
2: Well, I, I really love this question because it really gets to the heart of a lot of things, especially the very first thing you said about, um, you know, who makes it happen. And uh, sometimes uh, you point the, the, you know, the highlight, the spotlight on me, but it, it's a team effort here on campus, and it's been a team effort for a long time, and it's the people that were before me or that I learned from uh, that I feel like I'm just, uh, steward or custodian of of this great system that we have, and just by keeping it going is is a great um, is a great honor for me. But the campus really uh, embraces and supports any any idea that we can bring from facilities management or from our engineering department that would have a um, a purchase utility savings. So all of our projects that we have done have have had a financial component to them and especially this cogeneration plant um, was really put in as a way to as an economic um, project it re- really I mean it has engineering qualities and and it um, and it produces the 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 steam that it takes to heat and cool the campus but we by by having this thermodynamic efficiency that is greater than the business as usual, it translates directly into cost savings. We're really supplying this, even though we're supplying the same energy, we're supplying it more efficiently and at a lower cost. So what we look at is how much natural gas comes in and, how, and we allot some to electricity and some to the steam. And when we look at that as compared to business as usual, we save about, it ends up being about $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour um, for every kilowatt that we generate. So we generate about $200 million and so it ends up being about an $8 million savings annually to the campus. Wow. And uh, we lumped lump other things along with that. We've made investments of about $60 million since about 1992. And of those together, um, Cogen was the biggest one, about $30 million of that. But the rest of the things like digital controls on the campus and a thermal energy storage tank that hopefully maybe we can talk about later, um, and energy retrofits to the building, saves the campus about uh, of that $60 million investment, about $12 million annual return uh, that the campus does not have to pay. And how that relates is that um, because, like you talked about the state budgets and the shrinking state budgets, and combine that with our energy intensity of our buildings, we have never been fully funded for the enter- for the cost that we have anyhow, wow. so that our purchase utilities budget has always run in, a, in what we called a sort of a deficit, and so mm-hmm. the, the campus you have to pay the bills to keep the lights on, so could you imagine if it was twelve million dollars a year more? Um, in that so really, how that translates to, to the campus is the campus then does not have to use those resources to pay the energy bills, and then those does not have to be a burden on the on the students' tuition or any other program that the, the campus wants to support.
0: That's fantastic. And for everybody who has ever dealt with the school budget, regardless of whether or not it's a elementary, middle, high school, or college campus, you know that every dollar you're not spending on utilities, whether that's energy utilities or whether it's waste management, anytime you can conserve energy or maybe recycle instead of sending everything to the landfill, you're saving money on your utility bill. That money can be sent into the classroom as close to the students as possible and so that's a tremendous benefit to the the campus that you're that you're working with you know I'm very interested in this next question because I've seen fuel cells before but I haven't seen yours one of these days I'm gonna get down there I want to see your fuel cell project but I'd love for you to talk about this fuel cell project that you have put in and uh, give us give us some idea of how it works and and how it all began
2: well you know you 're invited to come anytime or open 24 <laughs> seven and so we 're in construction on this project right now, and it 's just a kind of a labor of love a little bit but um, and it came about uh, fairly you know I want you know by total serendipitous opportunity that came about um, through some networking and the fact that um, they were flaring this uh meth- waste methane off at our local wastewater treatment facility in, in San Diego. It's called the Point Loma Wastewater Treatment Facility. And um, I think the city of San Diego is having the same kind of financial problems as the state, and they had a good idea to capture that gas and sell it. And the company that won the contract to buy that methane uh, said they were going to take this methane and convert it to energy and fuel cells and the reason why that it was um, financially viable is because of the uh, incentives that uh, both the state of california and and the federal government uh... gave there was huge um, capital buy-down incentives from the state of california through a a program called the self-generation incentive program and then, of course, you get the what they call the thirty uh, percent investment tax credits uh, from the federal government and since we don 't pay federal taxes, we had to enter in through a, a fairly complicated what they call a power purchase agreement where we 're only buying the output of the fuel cell so this ends up being a hundred percent renewable um, project, um, and the fuel cell for ours is two point eight megawatts so really we, we by by taking so much of the Uh, of the output from that uh, project, we kind of helped make that project move forward because they were having some problems finding people to put the fuel cells on their their property. Um, How
0: much real estate does this fuel cell project take up? I mean, um, you know, sometimes when people think of power generation, they think of a huge, you know, power plant or, you know, something. Talk to us about the real estate, the, the postage size piece yeah. of real estate yeah. that a fuel I mean, cell a fuel project cell takes
2: up. It's a very interesting sort of um, generating unit uh, because, of course, we have our two gas turbines that are they're 13.5 megawatts a piece and they take up a very, you know, it's comparable-wise to a fuel cell. The gas turbine takes up a, a smaller footprint, and the fuel cells, you know, they were meant for... You know, producing energy from hydrogen. You know, maybe in the in the NASA space station, so where 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 you couldn't have you know a rotating equipment. So you know, even when we put our first um, generating system in, a a fuel cell really wasn't um, applicable. But because of the buy downs, it it becomes uh, financially viable. But the the thing about a fuel cell is it doesn't produce emissions because it's a it's a it's a chemical reaction rather than a combustion. So it has uh, air benefits in, in that sense, but it takes up about you know um, a tennis court size space. I think we're about 40 by 80 is we're we're putting in. So it's no it's no small um, um, you know uh, item, but uh, mm-hmm. it fits about you know we say uh, about in a in a tennis court size and and um, doesn't make very much noise. And, yeah, they um, are
0: quiet. Yeah, and, and no also, emissions, of course. And it Very also clean.
2: produces heat. So we're we're gonna once we get it up and running, we will then take the the, the heat that's coming out of the stack and, and use that to convert that into making chilled water.
0: No waste. I love it. What percentage of the university's overall power consumption is fulfilled by renewable energy at this point?
2: Well, so right now um, we 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 have one uh, one megawatt of photovoltaics on campus. Uh, so we again we did that through what they call the CCI, the California um, uh, Initiative for Solar, and that was capped out at one megawatt. Or we probably would have put more more solar on campus. And then of the power that we import from the grid, um, 20% of that power is green E certified. So if you count those two sources right now, that's it ends up being about five percent of the current campus. Um, uh, needs are, are generated mm-hmm. by or supplied by renewable sources, but this uh, fuel cell at 2.8 megawatts will be at that's about eight percent of our campus load. So then, we'll mm-hmm. by by the end of 2011, you know, we should be up about 13 percent.
0: That's impressive. I mean, that's way higher than you know the the average in most areas of the country. That's very impressive. Um, I'd love to shift our focus to energy efficiency for a moment, because generating clean and affordable energy is terrific. But through some of the things you were talking about before, efficiency, um, conservation, we can actually lower the amount of energy we need to generate. Tell us uh, some of the ways that UCSD is um, I- increasing energy efficiency.
2: Well, I mean, I would say um, I agree with everything you said there, and it, it is, I would you know say our number one priority. Is energy efficiency and conservation as well? They're kind of they're similar, but they're different. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see energy efficiency as making the existing systems um, as efficient as they can be, and then conservation is just using less. Um, So energy efficiency, like I said previously, we we have made great investments, a lot of sort of behind the scenes sort of um, investments in like cogeneration or or central plant improvements um, and digitalizing. That's word, the uh, control systems in the older buildings. Uh, but now as we're moving forward, and I think if you, I, you put it in my bio that, that we, we do see that um, energy efficiency is going to be the way that we comply uh, with these global warming initiatives and carbon, carbon reduction. So what we did a couple years ago through our – the one thing we do is have is great resources – Within the UC systems, we're one of ten campuses, and, and it's um, administrated by what they call the Office of the President. And they, they too, saw that as a uh, a way that you know how is this huge system going to comply with, with in particular, it's called AB 32, which is a law in California that says you need to get to 1990 levels by 2020. And we're a growth campus, so we're, we've got almost a billion dollars in construction now, and 1990, we were a lot smaller campus than we are now, and by 2020, we're going to be even, even bigger. So we got together as, as a, as a campus-wide, I don't know, system, and we also uh, combined with the CSU system and their 23 campuses, and we went to um, the PUC and we sort of carved out our, our own energy efficiency program that had incentives that were uh, a little bit higher than what they offer to any other. Um, you know sort of commercial industrial customer because they knew that that we had a lot of older buildings and we could perform. So based upon that study, we looked at every single building on campus and we looked at any place that they're using energy and we we know that there is a more efficient way to do it and if there is, we were going to invest in it if it had, you know, the kind of correct paybacks and and things. So really that's what led to this $73 million current initiative that we have. We're sort of in year 2 of it and um
0: Fantastic, fantastic. I want to hear some more about some of the things that you're doing. We have to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk about some of the energy efficiency programs at the University of California, San Diego. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Wellness Network. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We've got another great segment getting ready to get underway with John Diliot from the University of California, San Diego. He is the manager of their energy and utilities programs and Boy, they have a lot going on. This is really exciting stuff. I've got to give a quick shout out to all my tweets who are following me at at Jill Buck. Love to hear from you all. Love it when you guys tune in to Go Green Radio. You guys are awesome. And for those of you who do follow my tweets at, at Jill Buck, you know that I'm really concerned about this emerging issue, which is... The energy portfolio, the global energy supply that we've got to deal with, and the fact that we've got these BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, consuming more and more energy as their economies continue to grow. And that's a good thing. We want everybody to have a great economy, everybody to have a great standard of living. But the fact is, we're competing for the Earth's finite energy resources. So one of the things that we can do is look at ways to squeeze more work, more efficiency out of our energy systems, whether it's our electricity grid, whether it's our transportation grid. The more efficient we can make our systems, the less energy we have to generate. And one of the things that John has done at the UC San Diego campus is to create some amazing energy efficiency programs. And I want you to talk to us more about what you've done there, John. Go ahead and let us know about your energy efficiency
2: programs. Well, I think that, um, you know, our number one, you know, goal is just to be, you know, to be smart about it and to have this concept of deliver, just deliver the amount of energy the building needs. And we find out that we just – you know, I think a lot of people do is is to make the occupants happy. Um, the building can really kind of get out of whack, and we systems are overridden, and um, you know that, that's sort of the energy efficiency part of uh, of it. So one of our biggest um, goals and Part of the of our energy efficiency program is what we call kind of a recommissioning of the building we 've kind of termed this as uh, called it monitored based commissioning or MBCx and we go in and we fully meter the building and we figure out you know what is what 's it doing per energy per square foot and we do a complete engineering review of all the systems and see are they really fitting to how they were designed and are is the design really appropriate to the new Regulations and um, in terms of of how the building needs to be looked at, and just by doing that and tuning the building up, we're seeing, you know, anywhere from five to ten percent efficiency improvements right off the bat. And so, so that is something that we're really encouraging um, everyone to do, uh, just to keep things running as efficiently as, as they can on existing facilities. And then, based upon that, there'll be a bunch of recommendations that come out of that report that will lead to retrofits so uh as you go through the building you say well this this could be um, this could be more efficient that way you could put more sensors in here and there and and for us uh this with all of our lab buildings and a lab building is meant to be safe first not necessarily energy efficient but because of our historical you know need to get our energy costs down we have embraced uh this concept called uh, variable air volume and that is, again, just delivering just the amount of air that the lab or any space needs, um, to take care of its heat load or if it needs to heat or cool. And this is, um, for us, uh, a big uh, energy saver because pumping this air through the building 24-7 and heating it and cooling it and then discharging it is, is really what drives our, our cost. Maybe 80% of our cost is taken care of uh, or energy use by these buildings. So we go into a lab building, and um we we retrofitted to to you have to put these things called variable speed drives on the fans and uh at your um, in your rooms or in your labs you put these other systems we call them air valves and they regulate very precisely the amount of air that goes into the space and we combine that with um sensors in the just your motion sensors that uh that Know when you're there, they have some, not just your your infrared, but they have uh, sort of a, a hearing, sort of an ear on them called microphonics so they can pick up background noise. So you don't have to wave your arms around every time you light goes out. But it controls both the lights and the what we call the HVAC, or heating, ventilation, air conditioning system. So we're only delivering the air changes and the rates when people are in the space. And we mm-hmm. find out that in these lab buildings, sometimes there's people there at 3 in the morning, and they're not mm-hmm. there during the middle of the day. So we are trying really to focus on only delivering um, the energy to the space when the space is occupied.
0: That's brilliant. And and I know that there are a lot of things that campuses and homes and businesses have been doing to retrofit their buildings, um, to be more energy efficient. But the fact is that a lot of the energy consumption in a building relies upon human behavior. And you can put in sensors and you can put in um, all kinds of retrofits, but you know, there's somebody who can mess around with a the thermostat and there's somebody who can you know change those controls. Um, what do you do to address human behavior when it comes to energy efficiency and energy conservation
2: on campus? Yeah, I mean, you're hit the nail right on the head on that one. So one is that to go in and really look and study, you know how the how the energy is being used in a building. Uh, so that that sort of targets your measures first, because in a you know in an office building or you know in a may, even our classrooms, you know lighting has more of an influence than in a lab building where lighting is maybe only 10% of the energy use in a lab building, and the HVAC is 50 or higher. So you know we focus on on that area. So going in and knowing. Uh, what needs to be looked at um, is step one, and then, as we put these meters in these meters are digital meters and smart and give us you know fifteen minute and instantaneous readings that we can tell over time as soon as the building starts to change um, and once the energy in the building goes up, then that alerts our staff to go in to find out hey what 's overridden or what 's not now working right, but now going down into the level of the 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 lab or the the building occupants especially in a lab we have calculated that their direct plug load could be as much as 30% of the energy being used in that building so what we try to is engage them as, as much as we can knowing too that their uh, their job is is research and again we don't want to affect their research There's things like laser tables and um, electron microscopes that if you change the temperature in the room by 1 degree th- They can't do their experiment that day and they have to wait for 24 hours for it to settle out. Um, So so we need to be sensitive to to their requirements while at the same time saving as much energy as we can. So one of the things that really we're focused on is providing them with like real-time information so they can make decisions or they they can relate their actions uh, to real results, especially being on a research campus, everything is data-driven. So... Mm -hmm. When you tell someone to turn off the lights, they you know, or shut, shut their doors or windows, and they don't really see the 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 cause and effect because they don't on on our campus the the peop, you know the lab or the buildings don't necessarily pay directly for their energy. They do indirectly, but um, so we can't really hit them in the pocketbook yet. But we can we can give them data, and we've found out that data-driven behavior change happens without the monetary um, incentive, so mm-hmm. so we, we've deployed these meters and we've sort of developed a, a, a interface into it, and now we're starting to roll that out and to get um, get buy-in and awareness at that at the room level where where they can really they can really relate their actions uh, to energy decrease. We call that kind of the uh, Prius effect, because when yeah. you're driving your Prius, you can't help but look at the screen to see if you're if you can beat your last mile that, that you drove. So, so we're really data-driven in that sense.
0: I think that's really cool. And I I know that, that the utilities that are starting to roll out smart meters are looking at some very similar consumer applications so that people, whether it's on their computers or on their smartphones, can get that same kind of feedback on their home or business energy use. Um, are you guys involved in helping to develop any of those apps or any of those, you know, uh, applications for consumers, or is this pretty much just a, a campus program? Um,
2: a little bit of both, uh, a little bit more of the, on the campus side. Um, and in, in one particular area is really looking at the energy use of your um, computer mm-hmm. and develop. We have uh, a researcher on campus who is developing, you know, what they call kind of a sleep server uh, because we find out that the, that the needs of the researchers uh, don't really fit into the hibernate mode of Windows or, or whatever operating mm-hmm. system you have that, that doesn't really give you access to the files that you might need, uh, and coming up with a way to both meter that, display it, and uh, incorporate a uh, device that, that would take your hundred watt computer down to down to three watts ninety percent of the time. Um, but but we're definitely working with other with other uh, universities about trying to find this way. Um, You've got to make it a little bit sexy, I guess uh, Yeah, it's got to be fun
0: and interactive I mean, that's what we're all used to Mm
2: -hmm. We've got
0: to take a quick commercial break But folks, when we come back We've got more with John and what he's done at the UCSD campus And I'm going to be talking to him about how they got on the Chicago Climate Exchange Very exciting stuff They were the first university to do it So don't go away There's more Go Green Radio right after this
1: Healing occurs from the inside out. To awaken and activate the body's healing mechanisms, your emotions and thought patterns must be addressed and aligned with your truth. These concepts are discussed in detail on The Light Within, Awakening the Inner Healer with host Joan Jacobs. We'll introduce you to a new way to interpret and address your body's language of symptoms and how to turn disease into a platform of profound personal growth. Tune in to The Light Within every Monday at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, .CISION us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us or you joined us a bit late and you think, man, I wish I would have caught the first part of that show that sounds like so much fun, um, don't worry because you can do that. We replay this episode on Tuesday, next Tuesday, on the Green Living channel of Voice America. If you go to voiceamerica.com and you click on the Green Living button, you will find that Go Green Radio replays on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon on the East Coast. Everybody in Mountain and Central Time, do your own math. You can do it and you can listen to this episode once again or recommend it to your friends. We are joined today by John Dilliott. The manager of energy and utilities for the University of California San Diego, a campus community of about 45 to 50,000 people. And what he's done is truly remarkable in terms of their energy uh, generation, their energy Efficiency and conservation, but he's done something else. John, you led the university's efforts in carbon management, and you actually helped UCSD become the first university on the Chicago Climate Exchange. Talk to us about that process and how you got involved.
2: Well, again, it was is definitely a team effort, and it, this one came from really the highest of highest of levels. Um, and from you know, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the this uh, part of the UC San Diego campus is the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and um, of course their legacy is is uh, the research that Roger Revelle and Charles David Keeling did with studying CO2 in the atmosphere and noticing its rise. And of course, the Keeling curve is is uh, one of the most famous curves uh, about the effects of uh, CO2 buildup in the atmosphere. And it was through their um, alerting of the world um, of this problem that really, ca- it first led to this what I referred to earlier in this, what they call AB 32, the Global Warming Solutions Act, which was a California law. Um, and that developed what, what led to the reporting of your greenhouse gases. And it started with the California uh, Climate Action Registry and uh, the Vice Chancellor of the Marine Sciences. Charles, Dr. Charles Kennel, was on that board uh, that that initially set up this voluntary reporting requirement of greenhouse gases in the state of California. And so, because of course he was on the board, he, he it was imperative that, uh, it, that that we participate. And really, it's been sort of our marching orders is that since we're the the place that sort of alerted the world to uh, this issue that you know we should walk the walk and talk the talk and uh, and put our own money where our mouth is, and the first part of it is really getting your arms around what you're actually emitting. So we had some experience. Um, we were the first university in the in to, to really document all of our greenhouse gases uh, back all the way to, back to 2003 when we started. So we had some experience with that, and then came this Chicago Climate Exchange, where um was actually the founder of NASDAQ, who had a relationship with um, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and carbon monitoring and no and with the concept that there could be market-based solutions uh to this problem. Uh mm-hmm. so then again we looked at that at at that exchange and, and we 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 saw that again it's a voluntary market for carbon trading um mm-hmm. but we we looked at it really hard because we weren't sure if we could participate in a in a campus that had growing um, Square footage we were from two thousand and one to now we 've grown almost two, two million square feet of largely lab and clinical spaces, so our energy usage you know has gone up. Uh, but when we looked at that program in particular, it was really the the addition of our cogeneration plant that would uh, allowed us to participate and have carbon credits in that because of like I said earlier that econo- that Thermodynamic efficiency of cogeneration actually, you know, it it converts both economically and in greenhouse gases because you're burning less fuel per kilowatt hour produced. So our emissions actually went down from 2001 to 2003, even though our square footage went up. It's really kind of an incredible story to tell there. Well, it
0: really is because it's also something that a lot of businesses and other entities who might be kind of skittish about entering into – uh, you know, an exchange like this—they're growing too. You know, uh, cities are growing, businesses are growing, and and you're kind of a a case study in how you can successfully but be part of this exchange and be part of this kind of a system, a carbon you know trading system, even if you're growing. Exactly. I think that's pretty incredible. What do you think the benefit has been to UCSD by being part of the Chicago Climate Exchange? Well,
2: the main uh, the main benefit is sort of procedural wise on how you comply with the reporting requirements um, mm-hmm. because because they are strict and in the case of um, the Chicago climate exchange it is sort of governed by uh, the security and exchange commissions or the commodity commodity uh, exchange commission so it is it's it has very strict requirement guidelines that we're learning how to deal with and it's helping us as again AB 32 is going to have a cap-and-trade component to it, and they're going to come out with reporting requirements. So really, we knew that was coming down the line, and we wanted to get some experience in cap-and-trade markets to figure out how they work. And so when Mm -hmm. it does become a mandatory regulatory compliance effort, we'll be a little bit ahead of the game. And that's really what we're finding out because we've had AB 32, their cap-and-trade, is is just kind of, they're just making the rules, just codifying the rules right now. And we've had a, a great input into how those rules are being made. Mm-hmm. As an example, in the Chicago Climate Exchange, they said if you're, even though you are adding space, but if the space that you add, um, if it is a LEED certified building or if it beats what they call these, Title Twenty Four in California, which is the building standards, if you can beat that rate by a certain amount, and that's energy efficiency, then you get sort of extra credits for that or or, or those emissions that are associated with ultra efficient um construction then are put sort of in a different group than uh the mandatory requirements. So I we thought that was a great um a great effort and a great something that you want to promote people to do. Um, and, and well, take advantage of that.
0: Well, and I think you nailed a really important point. And there are some U.S. businesses who figured this out. If you belly up to the table early on, you get a chance to actually influence policy. <laughs> and I think some of the the businesses going forward in the 21st century who've been a part of some of the you know climate change and carbon public policy setting um, are, are going to be exactly what you said, way ahead of the game when it comes to figuring out how to comply with legislation we know is coming are are there other college campuses that are asking for your advice on how to catch up
2: yeah i mean we i think that again that's one of the the great things about um uc san diego is is our you know our desire our our marching orders to have you know global uh, a global reach and uh, natural uh national influence and mm-hmm. so um we uh we talk with with uh, anyone and everyone that that wants to discuss this. And we are in some sort of – there's some working groups even in the Chicago Climate Exchange that I participate in that's more sort of university-based. Mm-hmm. I think almost everyone thinks that um, – this is how you were saying about people bellying up early. Some people are afraid because they think, well, if I do all of my initiatives now and I'll have to set my baseline low – And then once the mandatory requirements, now I've got to get below my baseline, and I should have waited to do all these projects after the after the um, Mm -hmm. program started. And so again, that's how we're trying to influence policy, saying that actions, early actions you take, um, should be uh, counted. Yeah, you shouldn't be penalized for that. Mm -hmm.
0: Brilliant stuff. Boy, John, we're going to have to have you on another time because this has just been such an interesting conversation. And there's so much more I'd love to ask you. But thanks for joining us on Go Green Radio this week. Folks, we're going to be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Our guest next week will be talking to us about electronic waste and how to mitigate that growing problem in our environment. So be sure to join us. And until then, have a great week and Go Green.